Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt, and I am a science enthusiast, and I would like to start by acknowledging that I am speaking from lands traditionally owned by the Noongar people. I am not, however, joined by my illustrious, fantastic, lovely co-host, as per usual, Kate, as they have come down with an unfortunate case of COVID. It's coming for all of us. Hasn't gotten to me yet. Has it gotten to you yet, Benji? It has gotten to me. It's gotten um, to it you. It got to me last week while I was on a conference in Spain, actually. So oh. I got locked down in a foreign country, oh, which is not ideal. Would not recommend. That fun, but not at all. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, and that brings me to, I am joined by not one, but two guests today. We have returning friend of the show, except I think at this point, you're no longer friend of the show. I don't know what to call you. Lover of the show. I, I guess best I'll friend just be your show. surrogate co-host for surrogate this episode. Co-host the the honorary Kate, um, honorary carrying that Kate. goofy energy. Um. <laughs> um, astronomer, spaced man, space scientist, Benji. And also joined by a very special guest today. Astronomer who I believe is currently living in Canada and has worked on the topic for today, a previous topic of our show, the James Webb Telescope. Maddie, how are you going? Hi, good, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Benji, Maddie, Space Telescope, James Webb. I understand a lot has happened since we last talked about it. Since we last talked about it, I think there was delay number 75 and something like that. We weren't expecting mm-hmm. it to get off the ground till like 2025, but it's in space now. It's in space, finally. It's very yes. much in space now. <laughs> so yeah, let, let's catch up on that. Because mm. like what the last time we spoke was, I think, July of last year, was it? Oh, something like that. It feels Something like, like um, yeah, ago. where we last left off, it was going to be launched on October 31st. Um, and as you mentioned, a couple of delays, not yep. too big, um, but it ended up getting launched on Christmas of 2021. That's Christmas right. Day. So it was very Christmas exciting. miracle. Did you watch the launch? I did watch the launch. It was mm-hmm. very cute. So for me, it was like it <laughs> happened at about 9 p.m. local time. So it was just kind of like after Christmas, winding down the family around the TV. Nice. Um, I got cracking up at out four the good in the whiskies, morning. You know? <laughs> Up and four in the morning for it. <laughs> Were you sweating? Were you like watching anxiously or was it just a proud moment for you? Yeah, a bit of both. It was a bit scary, mm. but I was very confident that it would work at the same time. It was very, I guess, emotional is the right word to use to describe it. So of course. I cried when I saw the lift off oh. and it was just a magical moment that I'd been waiting for for years so yeah it was a wonderful way to start Christmas morning that's for sure you're not the only one one of the most beautiful things that I've heard just from like talking to people about James Webb is these like academics have been waiting for this for literally like 15 years and now it's finally Mm. coming true it's so nice to see everyone's getting so excited about it they grow up so fast (laughs) how about you Matt did you stay up for the launch or did you hear about it later or um I can't I I didn't stay up for the launch. I didn't watch the launch, but I remember reading about it and hearing about it and thinking, oh my gosh, it actually happened. It finally happened. And since it's been launched, um, my targeted algorithms on social media have kept trying to throw James Webb telescope content at me, but I've actually been intentionally dodging it and avoiding it and kind of keeping clear of James Webb content because I knew 
there would be a point in time that we would return to it on the podcast. And I wanted to be able to hear this information fresh so I could give some genuine reactions rather than just being another super fan and feigning a reaction, you know? So I actually only really know a few things here and there about what's popped up in thumbnails and stuff like that. Otherwise I've actually managed to, it's been difficult, but I've managed to keep pretty blind about the James Webb telescope. So that's so difficult to avoid spoilers when a spoiler is just reality. <laughs> I know I used to work at a cinema and, you know, during infinity war and Endgame and all that kind of thing. And that was a nightmare for when I was working the opening nights and things and then couldn't get to go seeing it until a week later. It, it feels the same, but I've been avoiding James Webb spoilers for the last six months. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of news to catch you up on. Yeah, let's go into it. Like what what's the what happened after that? So it got yeah. launched and then I remember there was like a really anxious like two, three weeks waiting for everything to unfold. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, about three to four weeks until it was completely all there safe and sound and it was a very stressful time. So I think Benji's told you before about how basically the telescope had to completely fold up into the rocket to be launched and then yeah. unfold itself into its optimal configuration yeah. to observe. And so that unfolding process takes about a month. And the terrifying part is that there are there's a lot of fail-safes, so if something goes wrong, something else can take over. But in the unfolding stage, there were a lot of things that if that one thing broke, the whole telescope was useless. Yes. So it was a very nerve wracking time. Of course, you definitely want to take your time with that. That's not a process you want to rush after 15 years of delays and development. Yeah. And that's exactly why it was delayed as long as it was, because really the the main delay most recently was the sun shield, which was this massive unfolding, I don't even know how to describe it, this very thin material that folds out. It's the size of a tennis court when it's, it's folded out mm. and it um, had to fold up into this very, very small amount of space and then unfold. They did a lot of testing on that and found some issues and so if that didn't work in space, then the whole telescope wouldn't work. Hence, yeah. there were delays to fix this sun shield to make sure it would definitely work as much as we could say definitely. you've just sunk billions definitely. of dollars into something that is just space debris. It's just a big old hunk of space debris, essentially. Yeah, exactly. It's better to be safe. So mm. that's why it was delayed and it paid off because it worked. So it unfolded. There were a few very minor hiccups along the way, but it all worked basically perfectly. And now it's completely unfolded. And so, yeah, that took about a month for it to, so the sun shield folded out mm -hmm. and then the telescope itself is, was folded in. So it's a beautiful, um, big hexagonal gold mirrors. Um, but that is actually too big to fit in the rocket. So the two side panels actually were folded in. Mm -hmm. So the side panels had to fold out. And then the secondary mirror, which kind of looks like a tripod sitting on top of that beautiful gold mirror. Yep. Um, that all also had to fold out. And so that whole unfolding process took a while. But again, everything worked really well. And it's all Yay. in the shape that you have seen it in the, in the demonstrations of what it should look like is actually what it looks like now. That is fantastic. It, it's good to know that it's not uh, 
for want of a better word, cursed in a way, because part of me would just imagine that all of the delays and the setbacks and the problems that occurred on land would then just follow it into space. And then there would just be problem after problem after problem. But it's good to know that that sunk time in the, the pre-launch phases of it actually paid off and it was worthy investments of time to allow it to function to its best abilities now that it's actually deployed. So how long till we can start seeing images from it? Well, about, so it, we're recording on June 17th, so about a month from today. Ooh. So it would be the 12th of July are the first images that are coming from web and it's going to be huge. Oh, I'm so excited. I am <laughs> unbelievably excited because even just looking at pictures that are still coming from, you know, Hubble and that are still groundbreaking and getting better and better and better. And the images we're getting of black holes and things like that, just from the, the combined networks of telescopes from Earth, the possibilities, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like going back to the unfolding for a second, was there like a most stressful day or a most stressful moment for you where you were just kind of like, oh, if it's going to go wrong, it's going to be today. <laughs> <laughs> there was maybe a few days. So NASA had a really cool feature. Uh, it's called Where is Web? And they would trace the deployment sequence live as it was going along. Mm. Um, and so every day that's a oh, you know, they've unfolded this, they've unfolded that. And then it was the sun shield's turn. And this is where all of the things that could have gone wrong um, would have gone wrong. And it didn't. <laughs> but that was the scary part. It said, you know, ongoing sun shield deployment. Like, no, <laughs> please just tell me it's finished. <laughs> and it was just on ongoing for a, a solid month or so. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were pretty good with the updates and it was actually quite impressive how much they communicated. So once they did, so the two sides of the sun shield, the left and the right side. So once they'd done one side, which takes, you know, a day or two, they actually would film the crew at the mission control, control center actually doing all of the deployments for the second side. So they knew it would work. They tested it on the first one without everybody watching. Yeah, And then smart. they did the second side with the world watching over them. So, yeah, that was cool mm. to watch. That's there were the a few parts that. that were televised along the way. And so that brings us kind of like to the end of sort of like January. And then like after that, so what happened? I heard that it had to cool and that took a while. Yeah, yeah. So it takes a long time. So because it's an infrared telescope, it needs to be very cold. And so that's part of the reason that we have the sun shield. Um, so the big sun shield always is between the earth and the sun mm -hmm. and the mirror and the instrument. And so what that does is, so there are five layers of this really thin, it's kind of like a fabric, five layers that are all separated by an air gap. Mm -hmm. And so... You can actually see online the temperatures, they update it every day. So on the hot side, yesterday it was 49 degrees Celsius. And by the time you get to the cold side, just by having this sun shield, there's no um, actual you know, cooling mechanism, there's no refrigerator or anything, just this sun shield in the way. The other side of the mirror is minus 240 degrees. So that's 32 oh. Kelvin if you're a science person. Yeah, that's fucking cold. <laughs> yeah, so it's amazing what this sun shield can actually do in terms of 
of cooling. And how this thick thing did down. you say that that material was? How thick? Really thin. Yeah. I yeah. don't know how thick. But oh, that's okay. Thin. <laughs> I don't think it's much thicker than properties. a normal piece of fabric. It's very oh shit. Very thin. Okay. Yeah, and so there's five separate layers, and so each layer, as you progressively go through, cools it a bit further and a bit further to the point where you get minus two hundred and forty degrees. So yeah, it took a long time to cool. So that is kind of another reason it's taken so long to see the data is. So once it got to its um, place in L2 in space where it will live, mm-hmm. it then took another month or two to actually reach that temperature because it wasn't being cooled by anything except for the lack of the sun. And so it slowly cooled to two four, minus 240. Yeah. There is one instrument on board that does have a cooler. It's called cryogenic cooler. Mm-hmm. And that at the moment is at minus 267 degrees which is six Kelvin. So six almost as cold as you, yeah. <laughs> almost as cold as you could possibly be. So that's, I would have thought that that level of coolness would be really bad for that kind of equipment and technology. You'd have issues of stuff, I don't know, icing over or not functioning properly. Is it? Is there a reason for bringing this equipment down to near absolute zero? Yeah. So this, so the instrument that is called in that way is MIRI, which is the mid-infrared instrument. And so as you go further into the infrared, you need a colder and colder telescope to be able to actually distinguish the signal from space. And so the instrument needs to be that cold for the science. Is it because the heat radiation from the ambient environment would get picked up as infrared rays, which is what you're trying to detect as light from distance, distant stuff in the universe. Exactly. So the telescope would measure the telescope's own emission. Ah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. Well, warm, cool. That's neat. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so in terms of the cooling down uh, you raised an important point about icing over Mm -hmm. so one reason that it took so long to cool down is they had to be quite clever about it and actually they had heaters on the instruments to heat them up so they didn't cool down as quickly as they otherwise would have behind Mm -hmm. the sun shield and that's because ice could form over the top of the instruments And we really don't want that. And so they actually had heaters so that the ice wouldn't fall. So you have to tread that line between getting it cool enough so your equipment can work, but not letting it cool down so quickly that everything breaks beforehand. Exactly. I'm surprised that ice can even form in space. Yeah, I was just thinking There's no water, right? Space is meant to be a vacuum because... Icing, I imagine, occurs in high altitudes of Earth's atmosphere because there's at least still shit there to freeze. But L2 is like when you we talked about it in our first episode of this, you know, comparatively where the ISS is and most of our orbiting stuff, this is way, way, way further out. Yeah, I'm it's a good question. I think perhaps it's liquid that was either on the telescope before it went to space or after it was released from the rocket, it flew through the atmosphere Mm. and could potentially have picked up Mm. particles there. But I don't know. 
Okay. I don't imagine there's any water in L2. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where is L2? Is that um still, I know Earth's atmosphere has lots and lots and lots of layers that get thinner and thinner and expand out quite further than what we would intuitively consider to be a part of Earth's atmosphere. Would Is L2 within that or is that technically space by that point? We're in space at that point by okay. quite a while. So okay. L2 is about four or five times further than the moon. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I had forgotten how much of a, of a scale out that that is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it had a long <laughs> journey to get where it was going. Further hmm. than the moon. That's, yeah. and we still don't have a base there. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not salty. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So continuing on the updates, it, it, it went mm-hmm. out, yep. um, it folded out, it got to L2, it cooled down. Um, and then what, what's, what, that, that brings us to like, what, February, March, like. Yeah. So the next big step, which took several months is to align the mirrors. So mm-hmm. Webb is a series that the big primary mirror actually contains a whole lot of little hexagon mirrors that are all stuck together. And so those mirrors weren't perfectly aligned with each other. They weren't designed to be, um, and so what needed to happen is that each of those mirrors was very, very finely adjusted mm-hmm. so that they all pointed in the just the right direction that, that that mirror is a perfect shape of what it needs to be. And so there are all of these little mechanical um, motors on the back of the mirror. So each mm-hmm. mirror has all of these little motors on it and the mirrors can move around and adjust till they're pointing properly. And part of the reason that this took so long was the speed of these mirrors moving. The the motors move the mirrors at the speed at which grass grows. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I imagine there's a good reason that we couldn't get better motors up there, right? I imagine probably weight and the amount of heat they generate, the amount of energy they'd consume. You kind of just want... Like when it comes to space travel, you really just kind of need to bring the bare minimum because of how much it takes pound per pound to actually get shit out of Earth's atmosphere, right? Yeah, and you you wouldn't want anything to break. But also we weren't in a hurry because we still needed this telescope to very slowly cool. And so you can't align the mirror perfectly until it's at its operating temperature. And so, yeah, there was no hurry. So these very slow motors were totally fine for the job yeah it was very funny you could actually again on nasa's website you could see them very slowly move (laughs) but yeah slow process this is insane i'm like getting a new appreciation for just how complicated this thing is with all its heaters and like tiny little motors behind everything so many intricate parts that have to work together otherwise although are there many like fail safes built into it because with this many intricacies and this many things that need to work for the telescope to work and because of how hazardous and unpredictable space travel is surely there are things built in that if something were to go wrong with one of those things it wouldn't render the telescope totally useless right yeah there are quite a few things um the deployment was one of the things where there weren't so many fail safes Um, But even then, there were a few options if things weren't to go as planned. Um, 
But especially going forward with the science, there are a lot of redundancies so that if something breaks, it's not a deal breaker and we can still go ahead and do science. Yeah. But luckily everything has worked. It's working really well. So yes. yeah, the mirrors have been aligned and at that point, um, an image was released to the public showing a beautifully crisp star. Um, oh. And we then had our first images, which was yeah, we really have, cool. We to have see. images. I, I haven't seen these images yet. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, let's okay. capture some honest Matt reactions. Yes, I'm please. ready for this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, can I just Google James Webb telescope image? Or if you and... want to share screen, Maddie, if you've got it. Um, yeah, let me try and find it. And we'll put these in the links in the podcast so everyone can play along oh, at yes. home. <laughs> and we can, you know what, record your own genuine reactions to the James yeah. Webb Telescope's <laughs> first images and send them into our socials, curiosityrat at gmail.com, curiositykilledtherat on Instagram and Facebook. I think Kate normally is the one who plugs the socials and manages the socials, so I hope I got those right. Yeah, ta tag, your, tag your stories with your reactions <laughs> to James Webb images. Aww. <laughs> oh. Oh, that's so pretty. That is so pretty. So, so who is this? Is this the first image that was taken for the alignment? So this is actually a little bit down the process of alignment. So to start with, because there are 18 mirrors, we got 18 individual pictures of stars. And then as the mirrors were aligned together, those stars eventually overlapped with each other. And then it was further refined to get this. So the image that we are talking about but the listener cannot see is an image of a star with eight very spiky points mm. and then all of these beautiful galaxies in the background. Now, yeah. NASA is very careful to only give us a low-quality JPEG because yes. otherwise scientists will do science <laughs> with this data. <laughs> and NASA wants the rights to do their science first. Yeah, they don't want anyone doing science before Web is officially ready for science. And that's so fair. That's because the science the might not is... be accurate, right? Because it's not fully calibrated yet. Yeah. It, it almost that's... gives me like... Um, it feels almost biblical, you know? It gives me that the star of um, Bethlehem kind of vibes <laughs> with, you know, the direct <laughs> totally. points going down and that it, it that is such a beautiful image. Is the mm -hmm. coloration of it, is that the true color that has been taken or is that classic colorization that is often done to space photographs for the sake yeah. of that? So this one, it's actually a black and white image that's just been made in yellow and red. Um, just to make it look prettier. Yeah. And so um, all of the images that have been released so far are black and white because mm -hmm. we want to make a very exciting splash when the, the first images are released in July. And wow. so there are no spoilers. No one's seen coloured colored images with web yet. So mm -hmm. this is, yeah, they kind of make it as basic as they can but yeah. still pretty enough to get people interested. But, but Webb is capable of taking Webb is capable of taking full color photographs? Um no. So the way that astronomy works is mm -hmm. you um have a lot of so the images on Webb have different filters and so you effectively block out 
parts of the spectrum that you're not interested in. So you could have a red filter and a green filter and a blue filter. In this case, red um, Webb is a, an infrared telescope, so it's all kind of red. But um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can assign each of the separate images of different wavelengths a different color, and then you stack those three individual images, so your red, green, and blue image, on top of each other, and yeah. then you can do some color tweaking to then get the pretty images that we'll be seeing soon. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, it's like not so much red, green, blue, but it's like red, more red, and then even <laughs> redder. <laughs> and then like, I don't know, because humans can't see infrared at all, you kind of have to move well, that yeah. to kind of like be red, green, and blue so you can actually there's, see There's not much point showing us an infrared image because... Yeah, right? You'd just be like, you oh, You won't be able to black. see it. <laughs> it's, it's brought into our into our spectrum so we can actually conceptualize what is going on outside of our own visual range mm. i wasn't sure if the That's yellow red of that image was because we're looking out far into space and everything's red shifted or if it was just for aesthetic purposes but yeah mm. aesthetics i appreciate it yeah everything will be red but we will make them not so red in our <laughs> pictures so you can actually appreciate them that is beautiful. Okay, so the first image that we got was of that single star. Yeah. And we were very excited by that. And so that was a very tiny cutout of what the instruments would see, just looking at a single star. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that's been released is this image of the full, what's called a focal plane of Webb. And so this shows all of the different instruments um, that Webb has. So, okay. so this is pointing at the large Magellanic Cloud. Mm -hmm. um, and so each of these objects in the image that the listener is really annoyed that they can't see right now <laughs> is, a, is a star. And so there are four instruments on web. So we've got the near-infrared camera or near-cam, the mm -hmm. near-infrared infra spectrometer, near-spec, the near-infrared imager and slitless spectrometer, or NIRIS, and the mid-infrared in instrument, or MIRI. And so these four instruments do a variety of different things, um, but they all, in this case, are taking an image of the sky. And so this is really the first full image that we have with Webb, which is I, really um, mind-blowing. Uh, it's, it's so dense. There are so many stars and galaxies packed into those images. Are we just pointing it at a particularly dense point in space? Or is this just because it's such a good telescope, what seemed blank to us before we can now actually see what is there in what we presumed was darkness? So you're definitely right that that will happen with Webb, but mm. actually we are looking at a very dense part of the universe okay. here. Especially like the one on uh, the... M-I-R-I, because it's got little wispy cloud bits. And mm -hmm. I presumably that's some kind of nebula, or is that just very, very faint stars in the distance that look like clouds because of how far away mm. they are and dense? No, you're right. Yeah, it is, it is a dust cloud there. They're so pretty. I cannot wait to see the really high-res images now. If this is... Yeah, it's a tease, I mean, isn't it? They give you these cruddy... <laughs> it, it, it is obviously quite low-res at the moment. So listeners, if you go and look this up, don't be, don't expect to be blown away by massive high-res images. I think I'm just, you know, literally starstruck because it's James Webb. But they are quite beautiful. 
they are quite beautiful. Can I share one more image that I've found that I'm just in love with? Please. Um, <laughs> I wonder if it's the same one I would like to share. I, w- I hope so. <laughs> so there is one more key image that has been released to the, the point where speak- Oh, sorry, Benji. <laughs> How does one... Only Maddie is allowed to share images of the James Webb telescope. Yeah. I'm not authorised. <laughs> We're not authorised. Uh, participants. Okay, dragon. All right. This this one was the one that absolutely blew my mind. So on the left, we have mm-hmm. uh, Spitzer, which is a really good space-based infrared telescope. <laughs> and you can uh-huh. see sort of like a series of like seven, eight stars that are kind of like in a triangle shape. Um, and a bit of like grainy background stuff on yeah, behind it. You can't pretty really make low that res. Much um, but then on the right, you have uh, what James Webb can see with his oh, mid infrared camera. They look All like all of a sudden snowflakes. the stars don't look like blobs; they look like stars. And you can see these beautiful dust lanes behind it, like swooping through. Oh my god! So that's looking at the same spot in space, and I noticed some <laughs> um, written beneath it is an eight for the Spitzer and seven point seven for the Webb. And a little symbol that I don't know what that means in terms of scale because it's been a while since I've been to school. Um, so is that different resolutions or? So that that's the wavelength. So that's just the color that these two telescopes are looking at. So they're looking okay. at the same patch of the sky with the same color, and this is just the resolution difference. So is it only from... looking at one wavelength of light at a time? Is that what so that means? It, yeah. So the filter, it's centered on a specific wavelength, but it will have a width. Um, and so it's not oh, just one okay. wavelength that we're seeing, but generally around eight microns or micrometers is right, what we're looking at. Right, but it's just on that wavelength. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for um, perspective 7.7, did you say micrometers? Yes. Is that, that's low? That's like infrared level? Or is that high wavelength? So this is in the mid-infrared, which is um, quite a ways into the infrared. Um, And so to date, so Spitzer, the image that we're actually comparing to, um, is, was the best infrared telescope that we have had. And so now we have Webb and you can see just yeah. how massive of a difference it makes. You versus the telescope she tells you not to worry about. That's such a stark contrast there. I'm sorry for listeners at home that we're going on and on about this visual <laughs> thing in a strictly audio medium. Um, so we will have all of the links to all of these in the description available so you can follow along at home. But if you can't be asked getting out your phone or getting out your computer and looking it up, fair enough. Basically, you've got a blurry image on the left and a much less blurry image on the right. And that's the low res image we've got from James Webb is the nice image. So again, I can't wait for the really nice high res images to come out because those are going to be mind blowing. So might be a good time to like talk as well about like talking about color and talking about like looking at like specific wavelengths. Um, James Webb has a couple of different instruments and some of them are cameras and some of them are spectrographs so it might be a good time to like talk about the difference between those two okay would you like me to talk about those yeah because you're the instrument person i i said everything that i knew about web when i talked about it (laughs) unfolding in the first episode i don't (laughs) okay yeah so there are four instruments and they all do different things but in Mm -hmm. some ways they're kind of the same so 
there are two ways that you can really look at space. First is imaging, which we've been talking about, which is when you, you put a filter in front of a camera and you take a photo just like you're used to taking photos. It's obviously a little bit more complicated that, than that, but generally you, you see a 2D image of all of the light that's kind of binned up in certain wavelengths. So we can take a red image, a blue image, a far mid-infrared image. The second way we can look at objects is via spectrometry. And so what this is doing is splitting up the light into its separate components. So if you've seen um, like a prism with white light coming in and all of the light being spurted out as a rainbow on the Pink other Floyd, side. Dark Side of the Moon, iconic Ex album cover. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what you should visualise if you're listening. Mm -hmm. So what we do by doing spectroscopy is you split the light into its different components and you can see exactly how much light the object is emitting at these different wavelengths. And so the reason that this is useful is if there are certain elements within the galaxy, so hydrogen, helium, carbon, those elements will actually emit a lot of light at a specific wavelength. And so in our spectrum, we will see the light will suddenly increase very sharply in a certain, at a certain wavelength. And so by measuring that, what we call emission line, we can actually detect how much of that element is in the galaxy and, or star or planet. Um, and so we yeah. can actually get some very detailed understanding of what things are made from and the properties in terms of how energized these, these things are. Which is insane that we're able to deduce what something billions and millions of light years away is actually made of elementally. Um, because I imagine you wouldn't be able to necessarily see, say, like a spike in the color blue if it was just white light coming at you because it's white light to our eyes. It just looks like white light. You have to break it apart into those elements to see where those finer details come up. The fact that we can do that, that we can split white light into its spectrums is 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 really cool. I'd, I'd never considered that and how that was used to measure things in the context of space. My mind's racing back to like year 11 chem and that and burning different metals under a Bunsen burner and the different colors they would come up. And I'm, it's all it's all coming together now. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that, though. It's the yeah. same colors like that. That element that looks purple when you burn it. Well, also, if it's in a galaxy that is hot, also be purple. And yep. so we can we can measure things that way. So, so yeah, you can either take images or you can split the, the light up into a spectrum and observe the spectrum. And so there are these four instruments on web all do these things in different ways. So there are the near-infrared instruments that all started with a near or something. They are looking more at the near-infrared infrared wavelengths and then MIRI is the mid-infrared imager, but it uh, was an instrument. It has an imager and a spectrum. That <laughs> Miri has an imager and a spectroscope. And so you can um, measure both. And so each, coming back to this redundancy, each of these instruments has multiple modes and each of these instruments can also do similar things. So multiple instruments can take images, multiple instruments can take um, spectroscopy. And so if one were to fail, then yeah. you've still got a backup. Are you able to operate all of them 
simultaneously so you can get multiple points of data or I mean also I wonder are you able to have them the different instruments looking in different directions at the same time or is it just getting different types of data for the same point in space that you're looking at that's a great question so the image that we all saw and the listener did not see before <laughs> was all of the different um, instruments all kind of laid out in a weird pattern, all of the five different uh, things. Yeah. And so that is actually how they're laid out on the focal plane. So that is one pointing. Webb was pointing in a given direction and the light was split into each of the instruments all at once. Oh, okay. I understand. Yeah, so the light can go into all of the different instruments. For logistical purposes, we only ever use two at once just because the data rate is so high and every time we take an image, we need to send it back to Earth. Mm. How so high we, is it? Are we talking like terabytes a second? or Couldn't tell you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's high enough that it's a problem for science and we need to be very careful about what observations get scheduled next to each other. So if something's very data-intensive we schedule something that's less data intensive next to it so that we can yeah. get the data back. And you hardly want to compress those files before sending them back because what what's the point then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there are certain ways that we do compress the data in, in some ways to um, still get all of the science that we need but without giving us too much data that we really don't need. Just um, cut so out like the dead optimized. air and the noise and that kind of thing. The bandwidth must be insane as well. Like you're going five times the distance to the moon, right? Like that's some powerful antennae. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's another instrument that is on the James Webb then is something that can transmit that back to Earth. How does that work in terms of the fact that one, it's so far away and two, it's orbiting around. I can't remember. Is it tidally locked with Earth? So there are transmitters that can constantly receive it or does the data have to maybe sometimes do a lap around Earth depending where James Webb is at in its orbit? If you don't know about that, that's all good. I'm just now kind of going in a tangent in my mind about how data transmission works. Yeah. So it is out, as I said, out past the moon. And so it's not actually orbiting the Earth. And so what happened, especially this is noticeable when it was launched and we tracked Webb's journey to the moon, is that there are ground stations all around the Earth. So there are ground stations here in North America and there's one, I believe, in Canberra um, also hey. helped track Webb, which is cool. Uh, and I think there are another couple around the world spaced around so that at all times something can communicate with Webb. And so oh, that okay. will still be how that all that all works and so as the earth spins the telescope will come into a different a view of a different um, telescope uh, it will come into view of a different receiver on the ground yeah okay that makes sense rather than just relying on one ground station you have them spread out all across earth yay at least i believe so it could so the main mission center is in baltimore and so it could be getting all of it but as far as i understand i think it, it gets shared around so okay. we can be in contact more often that makes sense so like let, let's let's talk a bit about like we've talked about the instruments we've talked about aligning them um one fact i heard actually <laughs> i wanted to mention that like um the alignment was better than the engineers like best predictions of it is that true 
generally everything has gone better than expected. So the images that we're getting are more crisp than we expected. Uh, everything is absolutely going more than according to plan. Oh, see, this is just insane to me because, like, you put this really sensitive image in like a space telescope and you shook it around a lot, and um, <laughs> turns out you just shook it such a way that everything just lined up perfectly. <laughs> well, no, because the mirrors were, as I said, aligned over a couple of months. So, mm. um, but after all of that alignment was done, just it's working really, really well. Shit just and I heard something about like the launch as well with the jet fuel that was saved. It's going to give Webb a longer life or something. Exactly. So the fuel that was on board Webb when it launched has to it had to get it into its orbit. So that meant firing several times from Earth to its location to actually get it there, and then every so often it needs to fire to remain in its orbit. Um, and a few other little things. And so the fuel that was on board was hoped, well, it was, it should have definitely lasted five years was the minimum requirement, and they were hoping for 10. And the launch from the rocket put it in such a perfect trajectory that it didn't need much fuel to burn to get into the correct orbit that it needed to be. And so there is at least 10 years of fuel remaining on board and it has been quoted that it could be up to 20 years of fuel compared to the five that was mandatory effectively so exciting it it worked perfectly that is something that i either didn't know or didn't recall from our last recording of james webb i don't know if we touched on um how it was fueled um but I guess that's just answered it. So it has jet fuel on there as opposed to having solar power or nuclear power or anything like that, meaning James Webb does have a shelf life. Is that different from Hubble? Because I know Hubble's been up there for a fat while. I, I, I don't know how many years, but so does that mean James Webb is going to come down to Earth or just float around in space aimlessly or at the end of the day just end before Hubble goes out of commission? <laughs> so Hubble's been up, well, it was launched in 1990, so 32 Ooh. years now. Older um, than any of us. It is older than us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and going strong, arguably mm. maybe going stronger than us. <laughs> <laughs> Hubble is doing the isolation and quarantine perfectly. <laughs> so Hubble was designed to be serviced. Uh, so it's in low Earth, low Earth orbit. Um, so it's easily accessible and was very easily accessible when it was launched in the days of the space shuttle. So the older listener may remember when Hubble was actually launched and turned on for the first time, the images that came out of Hubble did not look very good and they'd actually made an error in the mirror shape. And so what needed to happen the, the images were usable but very poor compared to what everyone expected them to be. So astronauts went up in the space shuttle and replaced some parts of the, the instrument to correct for this error. And so actually there's been quite a few servicing missions between the 90s and now okay. to continually repair Hubble. Now the space shuttle isn't in action anymore, so there are no further um, planned missions to 
uh, restore Hubble. So once it's gone, it will it will be the end of Hubble's life. But the difficulty with Webb is it's so far away that we actually have no way of going to service it. Yeah. So once it breaks, it breaks. It's not going to be like Hubble when it has another, you know, Hubble with nine lives or anything. It's one There's web no and, chance and it needs some... to work sending some newfangled rockets up there from SpaceX that can do some refueling missions for it or anything like that? Or is that just a little bit too unfeasible? So they have installed a grabber on the um, on web. So if there was ever to be a mission to go and reserve, if there was ever a mission to reservice web, the astronauts could grab on to web to actually do that. So it's planned in the sense that there is a very tiny piece of, of equipment that may help that. But generally, no, there are no plans and it's probably unlikely. They, they, they have still built in a small amount of infrastructure if technology does catch up with that, but it's unlikely. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Someone just said, let's put a handle in there just in case. Just yeah. in case. Yeah, never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd be pretty disappointed if SpaceX said, yeah, we'll go and fix Hubble. And you're like, oh, damn, we didn't have a, we don't have a handle. <laughs> <laughs> We've got nothing to grab onto. <laughs> now, one update that I did see come up on my newsfeed, I never clicked on it, but I, I did see the headline come up was that James Webb got hit by a meteorite or a piece of space debris or something like that and it damaged one of the mirrors or something like that what's yeah. what's up with that I didn't what's the this. go <laughs> ah yeah. hot news for benji oh so, hot news for benji <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so in may webb was hit by a micro meteoroid and so this is something that was expected so Webb is in space. It's mm -hmm. going to get hit by things that are also in space. And so yeah. that was totally planned for. And it survived. It's totally fine. Um, there is a little hole in one of the mirrors. Mm -hmm. And so luckily these um, mirrors all have these um, motors behind them. And so if the quality of the image is affected by one of these micro meteoroid strikes, you can actually adjust those mirrors just slightly to correct for any, any issues in the optics because of that event. So yeah, unfortunately it has been hit um, multiple times. So it was hit multiple by one times. big, yeah, <laughs> one big micro meteoroid. So it's still micro, so it's very small, yeah. but it was a bigger one and four smaller ones um, to, to date. And one interesting thing that I've learned, so this was released, I think only this week, um, this information. One thing that Webb can do is actually orient itself if it knows a meteor shower is coming. Mm. So this, it was kind of easy with Hubble because Hubble's in a tube. So <laughs> you can just face the tube. I, I Maybe it isn't, even has a flap. I'm not sure. But you can face <laughs> the tube away from the meteor shower and it still gets hit a lot. Um, so when the astronauts have returned parts of Hubble to the ground, they have seen all of these strikes. Mm. Um, but Webb doesn't have a tube. It's all open with this sun shield. And so what 
can, they can do is if they know a meteor shower is coming, you actually completely orient the spacecraft so that there is as small as possible overlap between the, the direction of the wind and the important parts of the instrument. So if they know a meteor shower is coming, they can try and mitigate that, but there will generally be meteoroid strikes, which are unavoidable, but very much expected. Um, and as Benji said before, the telescope is performing better than we expected. And so slowly after being hit many times, it will degrade, but that degradation will be you know, it's, it will still be a much, much better telescope than anything we've had before. So it's very minor in the grand scheme of things. That's so interesting, especially like the, the fact that it's made of like all these small mirrors. So if it does get damaged a bit, you can just kind of like readjust a little bit. It feels like yeah. it's more um, uh, it's resilient than itself. like something like Hubble. It's just a single big slab of metal. It feels like it's been designed with that in mind. Yeah, yeah. The, the it has a very modular nature to it. And I guess that means with the ability to adjust all of those mirrors, I mean, I, I know nothing about, I don't know, optics. I don't know what the, the actual word for it is, but you you could adjust those on the fly to make different measurements, right? You could change the focus of the thing constantly. It's, it's a completely modular device. Yeah, so you could. And what will happen is over time, they will slightly adjust the mirrors to account for any changes that, web has um, yeah. generally it won't change much but every so often they might need to do a little bit of fine tuning to mm. to make sure it's in as good of a shape as it can be it can service itself no astronauts required <laughs> <laughs> oh, i like that i like so that good. a lot so let's talk about the future we talked about kind of like what's happened so far but um mm. july 12th is coming up it's just around the corner Mm -hmm. I want to talk about some of the cool things that we're going to be able to do with James Webb. And you mentioned one of them, which is something that I'm really excited about, which is being able to use this spectroscopy on like these distant galaxies to look at sort of like answer questions like when in the universe was carbon formed? Like mm. <laughs> this is like this is like the chemical evolution of galaxies. And this is something that I'm super interested in. But like what, what else is James Webb going to be actually doing? Yeah, so there are four key science topics that Webb will uh, investigate. And the one that you've just mentioned is called Galaxies Through Time. And so it's looking at galaxies to see how galaxies form, how the elements in galaxies form, mm -hmm. what happens when galaxies collide. Um, yeah, what are galaxies made of with all of this new spectral capabilities? So that's um theme number one theme number two um is probably the most interesting i'd say for a non-astronomer which is other worlds so oh, this yes. is studying planets and uh, moons so um where we'll be able to study planets in our outer solar system mm -hmm. as well as studying planets around other stars and so with these spectral capabilities you can look at these planets around other stars and see what they're made of, see if they have any atmospheres and see if they could potentially harbour life. And so you could also look for biosignatures, so signatures of life on these other planets. So right. things because like, you've got the spectrometry, you can look at chemistry. Yeah. And so you can look, is there water on these planets? Is exactly. there oxygen? Is, is there, there chlorophyll? 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, because I always, I never really put much thought or consideration into how we pick up signs of life with this sort of deep space exploration in terms of just looking at it with a telescope. But yeah, it would it would be that spectrometry because yeah. that that's probably the best tool we have for that, right? Yeah, exactly. It's looking at what elements are in the atmospheres if there are atmospheres in these planets. And so the two key elements seem to be oxygen and methane are the kind of targets, particularly mm. methane for Webb. Mm. And so one planet system you may have heard of, which is a key target for this first year of web observations, is TRAPPIST-1. Mm. So this is a system where there are seven planets orbiting a star and they're all rocky planets and generally in the habitable zone of this star. All seven and so, of them? Uh, it seemed, on the basic news article I read today, it seemed like all seven of them may be, but that seems Ooh. quite unlikely, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But at least some of them may be in the habitable zone. And so, uh, yeah, there are quite a lot of observations with Webb planned to search mm. for the, to study these TRAPPIST-1 planets and see if they have atmospheres and what they contain. My mind just went to some alternate fictional world where all seven of these planets have developed life in their own way and then they developed space travel and communicated with each other and what those sort of geopolitics would be like on a larger scale rather than different countries of people interacting with each other, different races within a solar system between planets and what that would lead to. That's, that's Giving fun. Me major June vibes now. <laughs> <laughs> you got your desert planet in the middle, you got your ice age planet on the outside. <laughs> Star Wars style where each planet mm. can only have one environment, one biome. Exactly. <laughs> Poles don't exist. Seasons don't exist. Only desert. <laughs> yeah. So as well as planets, we can also look at moons. So the moons of Jupiter and Saturn are particularly exciting for life. Um, so Europa and Enceladus um, are both icy worlds. And so being able to look up close at those to see signs of potential life be mm. another target for web as well looking for like methane again that kind of signature i'm not sure exactly what the yeah. observations of those moons will show um but there are certainly definitely plans to study them in more detail with web so we got we got galaxies we got planets yes. origins of life so the next <laughs> topic is lifestyle of <laughs> lifestyle of stars <laughs> <laughs> hey what do they do on their days off <laughs> <laughs> the next topic is life cycle of stars. Yeah. And so this is studying how stars are born and then end their lives. So the key for Webb here is that when stars are born, they live in these nebula of, of dust and gas that we can't see through in visible wavelengths. But mm -hmm. if you go into the infrared, you can actually see through that thick dust and gas right, into yes. these regions where these stars are forming. Of course. Yeah. So you can see the formation of stars and planets around these stars, which will be oh, really cool. Oh, that, that is incredibly cool. I didn't even think about the fact that you can't really see through nebula, but longer wavelengths would be able to get around those gaseous things. So you could see what's going on inside them or even behind them. Check out a whole bunch of other sections of the universe that we haven't been able to explore. 
And then so the final of the four key topics is the early universe. Mm -hmm. And so this is trying to find the first galaxies and stars that formed. That was the main one that I had in my mind. Yeah. When you first learn about the concept of light years away and when you're looking into the distance, you are looking back in time. And then I think it's the first question that comes into everyone's mind is, can you look back to the start of the universe? And as we know, you can. And James Webb would be our best shot at seeing what happened at the Big Bang or just after the Big Bang, the very early origins of the universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the best thing we've had so far has been Hubble. Uh, which mm. can see a long way back. So we're seeing into the first billion years of the universe's history. Mm. But what happens with distant galaxies is that all of their light is redshifted into the infrared. Yeah. Um, and so I think Benji's explained this before. Yeah. And so Hubble is primarily a visible telescope, a little bit of UV and a little bit of near infrared. But mm -hmm. basically all of the light from these very distant objects uh, is not visible um, by Hubble. And so by getting an infrared telescope, you can actually start to see the light from these very distant galaxies. So if Hubble could see maybe the first billion, maybe six or 700 million years into the universe, Webb will be able to see even further. So hopefully the first stars and galaxies that form, it will definitely see further than Hubble, but it remains to be seen how far we can go when do the first stars yeah. and galaxies form. That's the one that I'm like most excited about. I'm a galaxies guy. And it's like just things like so many things that you want, you care about in space. And like you look at the data and you go to Redshift 1, Redshift 2, and then everything just drops off and everything's just the error bars just get massive um, because we don't have James Webb. <laughs> it's like there's a, there's a question that's sort of like there's a relationship that people have noticed that's like bigger galaxies tend to have more chemicals. Um, and we know this holds in the early, in the local universe, in the late times, but nobody mm -hmm. knows if it holds in sort of like the middle stages of the universe where most of the star formation is happening. Nobody knows if it holds earlier than that because until James Webb goes up, no one's been able to measure chemistry for these distant galaxies. We've just had to make our best guesses, right? Because, you know, yeah, I've people, heard... people draw a line and uh, maybe it fits. Maybe it doesn't. We just don't know. <laughs> it's kind of like we've got a few data points. We've just got to extrapolate from there, but we're just going to get more data points now. And I'm so excited to see if it changes our, our, our data line or if we if it proves us right, which it totally could. We could be like, yep, all of the things that we guessed are yeah, bang on, well done. Or it could be like, oh, we were totally wrong. Everything is wrong. We were so wrong. Dear God, my goodness, everything is crazy. And we just don't know yet until we get those exactly. images. So that's that's the topic that I'm most excited about too, this early mm. universe and and trying to find the first galaxies is, yeah. I think it's something that's deep, a, a, a desire that's deep in all scientists or even just people trying to find out where everything came from, trying to find out that explanation. There's There's something very primal in that, I think, so... It's very exciting that we actually have the equipment up there now and where it feels like we are at the beginning, we're on the brink of a whole new age of scientific discovery, a whole new age of astronomical discovery in particular. And astronomy for me has always been my favorite branch of science. If I ever were to pursue science as my as a career path, that's that's the route I would have taken. It didn't work out that way for me, but I'm still so glad that I can be 
hearing all about the discoveries and things as they're going on. It's, it's, it's insane. I'm so, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. There'll be a lot of discoveries coming out in the news very soon. So yeah, the first, uh, public images and, and data will be released on July 12th. And mm. as soon as that happens, the real observations kick in. So all of the astronomers will start getting hands on the data and, and publishing all of their exciting results. So mm. between now and you know Christmas, there'll be very exciting things popping up and, and still continuing for the lifetime of, of web. So, so how does that work exactly? Like how much of... Uh web time is sort of like owned by NASA and how much is sort of like for scientists? Yeah. yeah. So once the instrument commissioning is finished, so we kind of stopped at the point where the mirrors were aligned and we said that the telescope was ready to observe, but there is a key step in the middle that we haven't spoken about yet, which is actually instrument commissioning. So there are these four instruments on web and we need to make sure they're all working just the way that we thought they would when they were on the ground. And so mm. checking that they survived the flight and the observations are looking like they should. And so that's currently what's going on now. And so I'm very, very slightly involved in that. So working on the near spec instrument, the spectrograph to check that that's all looking good. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so at the moment, so there are 17 different modes of observing on web. So the four instruments have 17 total hmm. and seven of them have been confirmed to be working as expected and so there are still 10 to go and so that that will happen over the next couple of weeks <laughs> and so once those um instruments get ticked off we say yep we're happy that's working as we expect then it will go to 100 percent science mode and so we expect that will happen at the start of july and so from then on it's full-on science for the next Hopefully as 20 long years. As it can be alive for. <laughs> what do you do if in this phase you find some of the instruments aren't working properly? Is that when you just kind of go, oh shit, that's a shame, do the best science you can? Or are there things you can do to recalibrate or do repairs or whatever from the ground? Yeah, so there are certain things that can be changed at this stage. So it's all, there's all sorts of software. So any of the software can be changed to optimize certain things. Um, obviously, if there's a hardware issue, that's very difficult to fix. Yeah. Um, but really, the idea of commissioning is just checking everything. And if something doesn't necessarily work as we expect, just telling the scientists that are planning on using that mode, hey, this is producing some weird thing. Just be careful when you interpret that. Now, that hasn't seemed to happen yet. So. I can only obviously talk about the stuff that's public so far and everything that's been released so far mm -hmm. seems to have been going really well. And so there is no real indication that anything like that is, there's no certainly no big problem. So everything is going as good or even better than we expected. So there may be a few little hiccups, but generally there are things that we can do to mitigate certain things or, you know, just warn people that maybe this is a little bit worse than you expected in some way or yeah. maybe better than you expected in some way. So one thing that can happen is when you look with your telescope at something for a while, your pixels can become saturated. Um, the, they become, you know, you're observing too much light. 
And so if your telescope is more sensitive than you thought it would be, it's actually better than you thought, it will be quicker to saturate because you're just collecting so more light than you expected. And so you might have to say, okay, maybe you shouldn't observe for quite so long because you'll start to reach those limits. So it's kind of looking at those little things to tweak everyone's programs to make sure it's working exactly like we want it to be. Right. Yeah. To, to warn scientists so they don't like accidentally overexpose their images and just get like white light. Yeah. Yeah. It won't be anywhere near as extreme as that, but it's, it's something that we need to check and just make sure everything's working the way that we think it should or, you know, and just understanding that. Sure. Yeah. But it's all, it's all going very, very well. And you can see every couple of days NASA release that, you know, and another couple of modes have been successfully verified that they're working. And so, you know, as we come up to July, it's they'll pretty much all be ticked off and ready to go. Is there a website that you mentioned that we can follow along the updates of the James Webb telescope as, yes. they, as they come so out? Yes, so where is Webb um, via NASA is, yeah. is what to, to Google there and it will tell you all of the different instrument mm -hmm. modes and what's been ticked off and what's left to go over the next we'll, couple uh, of weeks. We'll make sure to link that one in the description as well if you don't feel like Googling it. You can just scroll down a bit and follow along, follow yeah. along with that, the James Webb really telescope. Exciting. Yeah. It feels like it's all good news now. It feels like the curse is broken yeah. and there's no more delays and everything's looking beautiful. And we're Touch gonna, wood. We're going to do some science. It's going to yeah. be good. mentioned that the next thing might be coming around at Christmas time and it makes me feel like James Webb Telescope is just Santa Claus delivering us new <laughs> gifts every single Christmas. And I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I know. I'm just like getting to the <laughs> like it I guess the the one question I want to work so working on the kind of like commissioning I'm getting a lot of sort of like stressed out emails from a lot of friends and colleagues just being like sorry for the late reply I've been extremely worried about James <laughs> Webb commissioning is this kind of like the same thing for you are you also sort of like in this stress time crunch sort of phase or <laughs> no I'm absolutely on the very 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 outskirts of the bubble if you think of all of the people who have dedicated their careers and you know, past year, just, you know, permanently on web, making sure it's working correctly. I've spent maybe a few hours on it. So I really can't take any credit for all of the wonderful things that have happened. It's definitely, it's been a massive job. And so, especially when things were happening with the unfolding and the, the mirrors, um, it was, it was a shift work job. It was 24 seven people were working on this all the time. And so it was a very big thing. So there are some people that, yeah, it's absolutely a huge deal, but I definitely can't take any of that. I've just been having a little look at the data and seeing what I think. And that's and it looks very, good. very calm <laughs> from my perspective. It's all, I think, going to become very not calm after June 12th. So yeah. once June 12th hits, the public will release, uh, NASA will release their very exciting first images to the public. But that date will also be the first date that astronomers get a hand on our own data. And so I'm part of some teams who have data scheduled for late June, early July. Mm. And so that 12th of July, we are going to get our first images from web to do science with. And so that for me will be when the stress gets <laughs> high. Everyone will be like jumping on this data, trying to get as much science out as you can before everybody else tries to do the exact same thing. So that'll be there is when a bit of a, really a rat hectic. race 
a bit of a rat race element to science, I suppose, especially if there's fresh new groundbreaking data like this. Everyone wants to be the first scientist to make that discovery. Yeah. Hopefully, exactly. hopefully we take a bit more of a collaborative approach and we're not too competitive about it. But either way, as long as we get good science about it and no one hurts each other, I'm, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, say as definitely... someone not involved in the science making process, only the science consumption process. So. <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of things that a lot of people really want to see. So they want to discover this first galaxy, you know, Redshift mm. 14, Galaxy 15, 16 maybe. Um, mm. And so these, you know, those science topics are very highly sought after and a lot of people are going to want to look at that very, very quickly. Um, but generally I think people are very collaborative and, you know, working with lots of teams on trying to do things with web that aren't, you know, we're not all cutthroat and out to get yeah. each other, definitely. <laughs> I think at the very least, astronomy has proven itself to be an excellent field for collaboration, just again, referencing those images of black holes that we've taken where it's requiring tele telescopes from literally all over the world to come together and piece these things together to create this this data, just the nature of the universe and space and how it's all around us. We, we have to be collaborative to make these discoveries. Otherwise we're not going to see shit, you know? But yeah. It'll definitely be a very intense time of a lot of people trying to do a lot of exciting science very quickly. Mm -hmm. well, I look forward to it. <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show with us today, Maddie. And thank you very much for returning again, Benji and helping fill in for Kate Hopefully they are feeling better soon. Um, if we want to find any more of you, Maddie, or if listeners want to find more of you on the internet, are there any pluggables that you wish to plug? Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at AstroMad. I tweet about web pretty much is the only thing I tweet about. <laughs> Amazing. Um, we'll also put a link to that in the description. And Benji, if people want to find you on the internet, where can people find you? Come check out my Instagram is probably the best place. That's my most public facing uh, social media platform. I also just talk about space a lot. So <laughs> Amazing. All right. And we'll put a link to that in the description as well. And if you want to find more from us, um, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Curiosity killed the rat. Uh, normally we would do a listener question at the end of every episode. However, with Kate getting COVID at such short notice, we... They are the one, they are the scientists, they are the one who normally prepares the answer for that. Unfortunately, we did not have time to prepare an answer for any listener questions, but I swear next month we'll be jumping straight back into that. You can email us at curiosityrat at gmail.com, curiosityrat at gmail.com. Any questions you have for us? Thank you very much. I can't wait to see the images finally come through. Maybe we'll do a James Webb part three after we get our uh, images come back. We'll get you back, Benji. We'll get you back, Maddie. We'll see what's what. We need to do a visual version of the podcast, mm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually show Maybe. off some stuff. Actually show some images. I'll have to figure out how to put images in a podcast <laughs> for Spotify. We can do it. We have nice. the technology. If we can put we have the James technology. Webb in space and unfollow its mirrors and cool I can put I can put a photo on a galaxies. podcast, surely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Goodbye. All right. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> Kill the rat.
Radio 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 Radio